winner take all, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. Really excited to have a special guest today, uh, Professor Eugene Volok. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We also have Nick Johnson, co-author uh, with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. Nick, uh, great to have you with us as well. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Professor, you uh, you know have clerked for Justice, uh, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Judge Alex Kaczynski on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. You've been a professor at UCLA for many, many years. You know a thing or two or, or three about what it takes to live by and protect the First Amendment. You teach First Amendment law at the UCLA School of Law and have recently written a paper titled here, Social Media Platforms as Common Carriers, question mark, uh, recently published in July of this year. So, Professor, what did I miss about yourself? And, um, you know, what prompted you to to publish this paper um, on, a, on a very interesting topic, one that is very near and dear to our heart here at, on Winner Take All? Well, what prompted me is everyone's talking about these things, and rightly so. It's a very difficult question. Uh, it's a question partly of First Amendment law, but also partly more broadly of free speech. People correctly point out that if Facebook or Twitter kicks you off the platform, they're not violating your First Amendment rights. The first word of the First Amendment is Congress. Congress shall make no law. That's been applied through the 14th Amendment, which mentioned states, have been applied to state and local governments. Private entities aren't bound by the First Amendment. If a private university expels you, that doesn't violate the First Amendment. If a private shopping mall kicks you out, that doesn't violate the First Amendment. But uh, these kinds of decisions by private entities might interfere with free speech, might interfere with the social phenomenon of people speaking freely, being able to participate in democratic self-government through their speech, being able to contribute to the marketplace of ideas. Of course, contribute both well and badly. Free speech sometimes protects all sorts of things that are bad as well as good. Like, like so many things, um, uh, uh, so many technologies, so many human behaviors can be used for good as well as for ill. Um, so one question is, to what extent should we be worried about social media platforms restricting speech on those platforms? Another related question is, to what extent do they have their own First Amendment rights to restrict these things? Just if you look at us, think of a spectrum of platforms. On one end is, let's say, the newspaper, which is a platform not just for its own writer's speech, but also for op-ed writers, for letters to the editor writers and the like, columnists. Well, they not only uh, uh, do decide what goes into the newspaper and decide to exclude certain things, they have a First Amendment right to do that. The Supreme Court expressly held that unanimously in a case called Miami Herald versus Ternillo in 1974. And what's more, it's very valuable to us as readers that they exercise this right. Um, a newspaper is all about what it excludes as well as what it includes. If I open up a newspaper, I want to see things that they've vetted for quality. And if I open up an opinion magazine, I may also want to see things that are vetted for ideological consistency with their message, because presumably that's what I want from that magazine. Uh, so that uh, there, to the extent they restrict speech that goes on in their papers, uh, excuse me, in their pages, uh, that's a First Amendment protected right to restrict speech that way, and itself a valuable contribution to the marketplace of ideas, because it allows us to have a new republic on the left and a national review on the right and Reason Magazine from a libertarian perspective. That's really very important. Let's look at the opposite uh, end of the spectrum, a phone company. A phone company can't say, well, we don't like what you're saying because you're a communist, because you're a racist, or because you are Antifa or whatever else, or because for that matter, we don't, you criticize the phone company, we don't like that. So we'll cancel your phone line. They're not allowed to do that because they're so-called common carriers. They're required to, to carry everybody subject to, to various neutral rules, like you gotta pay your bill. Um, uh, and that's true, by the way, not just because of privacy reasons, 
uh, a newspaper, excuse me, a phone company could find out that, say, the KKK or the Communist Party are using their phone lines uh, just through public information. There's a, there is a web page that says, call this number uh, to, to hear our message. Call this number if you want to join our organization. They can't just say, nope, we refuse to allow our property to be used uh, for, um, uh, for these evil ideas. Again, because they're a common carrier. Another example of that is UPS and FedEx. They're also are common carriers. They can't say we refuse to deliver things from anarchist bookstores or something like that. Uh, now, I'm a big believer in private property rights. I think private property rights are very important. And I think there's a plausible argument that these companies should be allowed to decide what to carry on their property. This having been said, we've restrained their private property rights in some measure. By the way, not just because they're monopolies. Traditional landline phone companies used to be monopolies. These days, they're usually competing with cable companies. But the same rules apply to famously competitive uh, entities like FedEx and UPS, and for that matter, like cell phone services, which compete with each other. They, too, are common carriers. So the, the sense is that these large, powerful companies, which at least put together often have a massive, massive share of the market, ought not be able to use their economic power uh, as a means of excluding competitors in some respects, but also uh, as a means of controlling the political marketplace of ideas. And one interesting question is to what extent should we take a similar view with regard to social media platforms, or maybe just with regard to some functions of a social media platforms. Maybe we should have a different view as to when, when a, a platform decides whom to host and whom not to host versus when it decides what to recommend and what not to recommend. Maybe platforms do have First Amendment rights when they say, we suggest you look at this, or lots of people are looking at this, or people who have your views might like this. Maybe they do have First Amendment rights to pick and choose as to those recommendations, but, should, but don't have First Amendment rights to just kick somebody off the service altogether. So this is what I've been trying to explore in my life. Yeah, you bring up, you know, just a couple things, just to break that down a little bit further. You know, I think what you're alluding to is, you know, we've seen actually a spectrum of censorship across uh, content platforms, social media platforms like a Facebook, including now communication platforms like a WhatsApp. You're seeing it on Amazon. You're seeing it on Twitch. You talk about you actually give a number of really good examples in your paper. But there's a spectrum of censorship, right? At one end of the spectrum, it's kicking uh, users, creators wholesale off the platform. At the other end of the spectrum, there's shadow banning, there's you know muting um, how much visibility a post gets or not recommending it, as you mentioned, to as many people, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we've seen a spectrum of censorship. And I think you know some of your papers is, is discussing where on the spectrum um, is appropriate. Some of what I took from it is that you know, uh, there there should be a a minimum threshold of common carrier application at 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 the most basic level of the spectrum being the hosting bit. Are you still exploring that kind of theorizing around that, or do you think that you know these common carrier provisions and precedent you know should apply at the most basic level, i.e., hosting? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure in part because, uh, again, I'm a big believer in private property. I'm a big believer in free markets. Generally speaking, I think free markets are better than government regulation. Although, of course, there's a question of how much government regulation is needed in order to make sure the market uh, really operates uh, in, a, in a free way. Uh, but but I find that, that uh, lots of problems are made worse by attempts to regulate rather than being made better. So it's certainly possible that if you set up these kinds of common carrier regulations, that's going to interfere perhaps with uh, new entrants, new uh, possible competitors might find it much harder to deal with all those regulations. Likewise, let's say you have a rule that says anybody who gets kicked off for ideological reasons or have a, has a post block for ideological reasons um, can sue. Well, one problem with that is that sometimes there'll be posts that are removed for non-ideological reasons. Just for example, uh, uh, platforms have an obligation to remove uh, material that uh, they have good reason to think infringes copyright. 
So they do that, and then somebody says, no, 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 the real reason you removed it is because of my politics. You didn't remove this other post that was supposedly similar, similarly infringed copyright, but from a different political perspective, aha, I'm going to sue you. So you could have all of these lawsuits uh, uh, sometimes brought by people who are pro se, who are representing themselves, who don't have a lawyer, they're less like, even less likely to win that way, but at least the, the barrier of having to hire a lawyer wouldn't even apply there. So there'll be all these lawsuits that these platforms are going to have to deal with. Uh, and uh, it may be expensive for them, it may be expensive for the legal system, it may push them to, uh, to not get into certain kinds of uh, hosting of user-generated content or set up other rules that might be counterproductive. So I, I think we should always be cautious before any big regulatory move. Uh, I think that the argument for common carrier treatment as to the, the hosting decision is a plausible argument. I think there's there are good reasons for it, as well as reasons against it. I also think that as a constitutional matter, if Congress wants to experiment with that, and maybe even if states want to experiment that, that's also, by the way, a separate question. Can it be done at the state level? Does it have to be done at the federal level? Uh, but, may, but if they experiment with it, I don't think that there's a First Amendment problem with it, assuming they do it right. There are some ways they're doing it that may be wrong, um, but uh, uh, I, I have I have to say I'm quite tentative on the subject because uh, you know there are always unexpected uh, unexpected possible consequences of any form of regulation, and on balance, uh, uh, it may be that it'll do more harm than good. I, I have to admit that that's a, definitely a possibility. I'm going to err on the side of probably not more harm than good, <laughs> given how powerful and how overbearing and and how many transgressions we've seen. Even if you take it out of the political lens, which obviously has been, you know, the everything has become so political these days. But, you know, one of the examples we've touched on in the show, we've had some guests come on the show, is actually the crypto community. Um, so get away from COVID, get away from politics and and the amount of censorship that's going on there. But the crypto community has been censored by um, Google and Facebook and the like for years. You know, uh, we've had guests on the show who've had hundreds of thousands of subscribers, you know, who have created hundreds or thousands of videos um, and they've had their entire channel, their entire following wiped out all of their content, not even to mention their following wiped out, but all of their content. Um, which, you know, they had uploaded to YouTube, for example, and all of that just gone because the the powers that be at the tech monopolies and these content platforms decreed that crypto type content was infringing on, you know, one of the various, uh, um, you know, versions of their privacy policy or, or user standard policies. You know, when we take it out of the political landscape, or, or if you talk about religious freedoms, right? I mean, there are a whole series of transgressions um, by these big tech content monopolies outside of just the political mainstream discussion that has consumed every one of us uh, the, you know, the past couple of years here. I definitely am very firmly on the side of, you know, these tech monopolies have infringed. They've opened up Pandora's box. They, you know, they've actually gone against the very grain of what it means to be a platform business, which is to facilitate the exchange of ideas and bring together consumers and producers. And I'd actually say they're probably in violation of their platform status as provided to them under Section 230, but that's a whole other discussion. Well, I'd be happy to talk about that because actually I think that generally speaking, they uh, uh, they are protected by Section 230 as to many, many facets of their operation. One interesting question is, should 230 be modified in certain ways? Well, the reason why they're protected by Section 230 is because there's, there's like three words in Section 230 which say, and any other harmful content, right? I mean, Section 230 was put into place to protect against child pornography and illicit, you know, pornographic and material, particularly with children, right? That was the whole impetus of 230 over 20 years ago now. But the language was written so loosely that big tech has used it to cover everything under the sun, including crypto content on YouTube. If you want to say, yeah, any other harmful content, talking about crypto community and an alternative financial system is considered harmful to the stability of the United States. Okay. But in what was the true impetus for Section 230, they've absolutely violated 
you know, the 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 reason why these protections were put into place, but still to let them operate as a platform. So in that regard, I'd say they're totally on the line of publisher these days. So actually, I don't think that's quite right. So I agree with you as to one thing. Section two. So first of all, let's step back. Section 230 has two most two particularly important provisions. One is that it says that platforms, but also other other companies that we don't really view as social media platforms, other companies, even individual users, aren't going to be responsible as publishers or speakers for material provided by someone else. That's what allows an entity like YouTube, uh, branch of Google, but let's talk about it separately as YouTube or Facebook or Twitter to function. Because otherwise, anytime somebody says something defamatory on Twitter, Twitter could be sued, just like a newspaper could be sued for publishing defamatory letters to the editor. And the, the Twitter would never have been able to get off the ground that way. Uh, so that's an important provision, so-called C1, because that's subsection C1 of Section 230. Uh, Section 230 also says that they're going to be immune uh, from liability for taking stuff down. So 230C1 says they're immune from a liability for keeping stuff up. 230C2 says um, they're immune from liability for taking stuff down if the material is lewd or excessively violent or harassing or otherwise objectionable. And actually, just this morning, I was finishing editing on a co-written piece of mine for the same symposium, where we say that Section 230C2 doesn't give platforms the right to block everything that is objectionable just because they don't like it. It only uh, gives them the right to block things that are otherwise objectionable in similar ways to the other list of of, of uh, adjectives that were listed there. So we do think the 230C2 provides limited protection for them. So they can block pornography, they maybe can block vulgarities, they can't block material they found politically offensive. So on that point, we agree. But even if they don't have this 230C2 immunity for blocking, let's say, I don't know what exactly they're doing this to crypto, and some of the time, at least some of the stories turn out to have a different explanation, like maybe some claim of copyright infringement or whatever. But let's say they're blocking material having to do with crypto because they don't like it. 230C2 doesn't protect them. But the problem is under current law, there's no law that prohibits them from doing it. So as a result, it's not like they're violating 230 by blocking it. 230 doesn't say you platforms may not block anything unless it's sexually themed or excessively violent or whatever else. It just says we'll provide you with immunity from contrary state law if you remove material. But there actually aren't a lot of state laws. In fact, very few state laws can even be argued to currently impose obligations on platforms to host things. So the question really is what new laws, if any, should be enacted in order to impose such obligations. But right now, I don't think the platforms are violating any laws. And again, we can talk about some possible theories, but there were pretty, pretty much stretches of theories. If they violate C2, right, for taking down content, it doesn't fit with the ethos of, of, of you know, the, the primary language then that doesn't invalidate their protections as a platform in C1. Almost exactly. They can't violate C2. C2 doesn't tell them, you may not take stuff down. C2 tells them, we will give you immunity from lawsuits over supposedly improper takedown. And again, not that the undercurrent law, there are going to be many such lawsuits, but if there are any, we'll give you immunity if you're taking it down because you consider it to be uh, harassing or, uh, or lewd or um, excessively violent and such. If you take it down for other reasons, you're not violating C2. You just don't get that C2 protection. And uh, if you do take it down for some other reason, you don't lose your C1 protection. Uh, in, uh, that the C1 protection is independent of the C2 protection. C1 says you're not liable for things you keep up unless you're the one who actually created them. C2 says you're not liable when you take things down, if you take it down for certain reasons. If you take it down for some other reasons, then, well, maybe if there's some law that bars you from taking it, taking it down, then you could be sued for that. But it doesn't undermine the C1 protection uh, that you get. You draw a very useful distinction, which you alluded to earlier, between the hosting function, the recommendation function, and the conversation function. And then you know, maybe maybe uh, you know, Section 230 could be adjusted to apply to certain of those, but not others. Tell us a little bit more about you know, those distinctions and, and how you view that. Sure. So um, 
let's say that uh, a platform uh, blocks me from being able to post things on the platform and being able to reach the people who subscribe to my feed. You know, again, I don't think it has a First Amendment right to do that. I'd be happy to talk about the precedents if you want to, but let me. I just don't, I don't think it has a First Amendment right to do that. And I don't think there's a lot of real value created by their blocking people from, from posting things. I mean, I suppose if you think people are posting bad things and you think it's valuable for entities to be able to stop bad speech, there's value uh, in that. But I think on balance, our free speech principles are that we don't want either the government, I think, or super powerful uh, entities that are close to monopolies in their own niches from being able to control debate this way. Uh, so, so other than just a some moral sense, we want to completely dissociate ourselves from the speech. There's not much value there. And again, the analogy is the, is the phone companies that we generally speaking, don't let phone companies block people's phone lines, even if we think, even if they think the phone lines are being used to spread bad ideas. Uh, so that's the hosting function. Let's look at the recommendation function. Let's say I go on to YouTube or Twitter, and I'm interested in finding new stuff. There is real value in them recommending things that they think are good. Uh, and maybe not recommending things that, that they have good reason to think are lies or just junk, or even represent viewpoints that most people find highly offensive, at least many people find highly offensive. There's real value to users in being able to follow those recommendations uh, um, and having there be a curated set of recommendations. Because after all, uh, if all they recommended was a random page, that wouldn't be very useful to you. It wouldn't be a good recommendation. So again, that's similar to what newspapers do and what magazines do in, uh, in, in choosing what what to cover and what to present to their users. So that's something as to which there's both, I think, First Amendment protection, I think those recommendations are the company's own speech, and also, I think, real value that we don't want to stifle by imposing some sort of common carrier mandate. Now, then there's the conversation function. So uh, the classic example is uh, comments that can be put onto a uh, onto somebody's Twitter feed or somebody's Facebook page by people who could either just be completely unrelated to that page, or even if technically they have to send in a friend request or some such, it may just be that there are going to be lots and lots of such requests. So a lot of them are going to be people who are not carefully screened. One problem that I think people correctly point out, and I've certainly seen it, I've been moderating online discussions for 25 years now uh, in various fora, uh, is that if people can just post anything they want there, that makes that discussion less useful for most readers. The classic example of that, of course, is spam, right? That if you don't have some sort of filtering uh, of comments on other people's pages, they get drowned out in spam and become much less useful to people. Uh, note the difference with the hosting function, the fact that there happen to be maybe some spam Twitter feeds or whatever else, not a problem for me because I'm just not going to follow them. But if there's going to be all the spam posted on Twitter feeds that I read or as comments to the Twitter feeds I read, then I'm not going to read those feeds or those comments. Another related thing is personal insults. And they could be racist, let's say, or anti-gay or whatever else. It could just be other kinds of insults. My sense is that that poisons the conversation in many ways, that people could just ignore them, but it's not easy to ignore them altogether. And uh, uh, the result is that people will be less likely to engage in that kind of conversation. So there is, again, real value in the platforms providing some curation for, uh, for these comments. So, uh, uh, so I think... Uh, those are just examples and we can go into much more detail and anybody who, if there is such a law that would have to, somebody would have to come up with it or d define in much more detail. But I think it's a reminder that there are different things that those companies do. And as to certain things, it makes sense to say, look, just open it up to everybody. But as to other things, if you open it up to everybody, again, including the spammers, uh, that's going to, that, that's going to, ruin the whole experience, ruin the companies, but also ruin the experience for the users. So, so that's why I think we need to be cautious in just saying, oh, we have to completely eliminate their discretion, uh, the platform's discretion. I think that would be a bad mistake. You also mentioned, uh, I think in your paper, talk a little bit about as well, some of these companies have kind of stepped into this vacuum. Facebook kind of famously has created its own content moderation 
kind of council that Mark Zuckerberg has kind of called the Supreme Court of Facebook. What's your take? Uh, what's your take on that kind of uh, uh, you know, self-regulation? Do you think it will be effective? Hard to tell. There's a famous line by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, um, uh, about the First Amendment and about the Constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. So I, I, I welcome experiments. I, I'm not sure how successful it'll end up being. I do think so far it seems to have reined in some of Facebook's uh, oversensorious qualities. At the same time, you know, the one way of thinking about it is, uh, given how vitally important Facebook is to just to American political life, including election campaigns, including very close election campaigns where the ability to use this medium or not may very well make the difference in a country that's split uh, you look, you look at the, at the uh, House and the Senate, they're split, uh, uh, Senate literally 50-50, the House is very close to it. Um, so uh, who gets to decide? Uh, what are the criteria that are used to decide what political candidates and other important players in public debates, including ordinary citizens, get to say in this important media? One possible answer is it's decided by uh, the art the legal rules of First Amendment law. So maybe a few, some regulations are permissible on libel, copyright, infringement, and such. But generally speaking, speech is protected, and it is, uh, and that includes bad speech as well as good speech. That's one possibility. A second possibility is Mark Zuckerberg should decide. Maybe not just Mark Zuckerberg. It's always more complicated than one guy. There are the shareholders, but also other influential employees within an organization. Even if the even if the boss is the boss, the sentiments of other employees are very important because he wants to keep his employees uh, uh, happy because otherwise they'll leave, and that's bad for the company. Uh, so maybe it should be kind of the Facebook higher ups and just in general the tech elites. And I don't use elite by the way pejoratively. <laughs> There's a reason that they're elite. A lot of them are really very smart people, um, uh, maybe quite well-intentioned. So you could imagine that you could say, look, you know, this is a, we're in a private property system. Of course, private property owners and those people who have their ear uh, should make these decisions. Uh, a third possibility is let's have it be decided according to principles of so-called so international human rights law. And that's what Facebook is appealing to. So it sets up this board, I think it's 20 members right now, which only a quarter are Americans, perfectly understandable because after all, Facebook is a worldwide company. They're not applying, generally speaking, First Amendment law, American First Amendment law, to the extent they're applying by analogy and illegal rules that are the rules of international human rights law, which are set by, again, a certain set of kind of international uh, legal elites that protect certain kinds of speech, don't protect certain other kinds of speech, favor certain ideas, disfavor other ideas. Again, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe those rules are acceptable rules. I'm just skeptical that that's how American elections should be run and American political life should be run with an attention to what foreigners think about what international norms should be. And I, and I, I would apply that to any other country too. I don't think that the French should tolerate French elections being run uh, by applying the standards of what Americans think the rules ought to be. Uh, so, uh, so I'm not wild on balance about the oversight board. Maybe it's the best of a bunch of, of um, uh, options that ha each have their own problems. Maybe it's the best solution. But I do think one concern we should have is that this is American elections being run, not by the kind of the well-established rules of American of American uh, First Amendment law, but being run by these decisions of these powerful companies that delegate these decisions to these lawyers, some of whom, by the way, I know in person and like very much. Uh, but um, uh, I'm, I just I'm skeptical that that's the right way uh, of running our political system. So to be qualified as a common carrier, this would actually need to be passed as a law, either at the federal or state level right. to label could either be specific specific companies or it could be a specific class of company that could be labeled as a common carrier. Right. Although let me just suggest, and by the way, uh, part of the problem was is the title, which you accurately quoted the earlier title, I revised the title some, it hasn't been published yet, it should be published in a couple of weeks, uh, which is treating 
social media platforms like common carriers question mark because i because i found people saying well no no the legal definition of common carrier is this and that and you look up certain court cases that say yeah it's defined this way other cases may say it's defined some other way the, to me, the question isn't, are they common carriers under some objective definition? It's, should they be treated like that? And that is a decision that, again, might be made by Congress or might be made by state legislatures. So you're right that the question is, at this point, is what laws, if any, should these legislatures enact? And so, you know, similar, right? You, I mean, you talk about cell phone companies, telecom companies, right? They have similar, a lot of similar attributes, that these social media platforms have in, in terms of the negative impact of being labeled a common carrier. For example, you know, we all get spam calls, we all get spam text messages, right? And so how do telecoms handle companies or users that are abusing the, the cell phone or telecom industry? And how do they treat these bad actors that are just a nuisance to the network uh, versus uh, you know, kicking off the the hosting right or privilege that comes with common carrier status from users that are carrying opinions that that fall outside the lines of of that platform or that common carrier, right? So, do you think that these problems are they don't seem insurmountable to me? I mean, you address a number of them in your paper to kind of I think get out in front of what some of the uh, concerns would be or 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 negative impacts of of being labeled a common carrier would be. You know, it seems like there are ways to work through that under the common carrier status, and there might be some precedent to provide some guidance about how best to do that. Is that your your general feel towards it, or or what's your sentiment? Yeah, I'm inclined to say this is something that's worth experimenting with, uh, and uh, I do think that uh, you need to make sure that things are written are drafted the right way. So, for example, there's a Florida law that was just blocked by a Florida, uh, by a federal judge in Florida. And I think quite correctly blocked in part because that law limited platforms ability to respond to things that it limited their ability to say label some, some tweet with, uh, we think this is wrong and here's why. That is the exercise of the platform's own free speech rights. Now, sure, they can exercise those, the, those rights in biased ways, but the First Amendment includes your right to speak in biased ways. And in fact, some of the time, the speech that they add, that they contribute is a valuable thing to users and to public debate, that if they think that something really is wrong, I think the proper solution is for them to say, here's why we think it's wrong, rather than to delete it. Um, so likewise, I've seen some proposals that say, well, platforms can't, can't uh, 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 block uh, uh, viewpoints. Well, except viewpoints that are pro-terrorist or viewpoints that encourage self-harm or something like that. You can't have a viewpoint neutrality mandate that is itself viewpoint-based, that itself excludes certain kinds of viewpoints from protection. That I think would be unconstitutional. So a lot depends on how you're going to implement it. Uh, also, you don't want to put, again, the platforms in a position where, uh, where they're not just going to be inundated with the lawsuits, but potentially very much, uh, very much uh, um, uh, damaged by even innocent mistakes that are going to happen. One of the things that, that we have to recognize is that so long as platforms have any ability to restrict things, and they have to in part for copyright reasons, again, current copyright law basically requires them, I oversimplify it here, but basically requires them to remove certain material that's infringing copyright once they're on notice of it. They're gonna to have to make these decisions and they're going to be errors. There's going to be somebody who perhaps just, just some, some individual's line operator who blocks something, doesn't block something else, and maybe the reason is he just doesn't like the ideology of the thing that he's blocking. So you don't want to have a situation, for example, imagine you say, well, the moment you discriminate against any material based on viewpoint, you lose all of your immunity against libel lawsuits, against defamation lawsuits. So just because of this one error, you, you end up costing you hundreds of millions of dollars because of that. That's not fair, I think. And that's not something that's going to be effective because that's going to make platforms uh, uh, too reluctant to delete things that they should be deleting. Uh, so, so I, and the other thing to keep in mind is if you do do it at the state level, you have to think about how you keep states from exporting their rules outside their own borders and how you avoid a situation where uh, one state has one rule and another state has an inconsistent rule. Imagine that, for example, uh, the state of California says 
uh, platforms, you, you must block certain kinds of material. And the state of Texas says platforms, you may not block certain kinds of material. Uh, wh what do they do? So I think there are ways of dealing with that. Geolocation technology, the technology for figuring out where a user is coming from, is far from perfect, among other things, because people can use technology to hide their location, uh, virtual, uh, virtual private networks and the like. Uh, and partly also because, you know, there are cities that straddle, uh, uh, that straddle a state line. Uh, so uh, you may not know where somebody's coming from, but I think it's close enough that you can imagine state laws focusing on speech that is in some sense within the state, which again, you'd have to define specifically what that means. Uh, so, so you need to make sure that anything that's done along these lines is done carefully. I think one advantage of having it be done on a state-by-state -state basis, there could be some degree of experimentation. So as a result, you know, if North Dakota tries something and it totally screws up to the point where North Dakotans can't have useful conversations anymore because they're inundated with spam or with personal insults on their Facebook pages and such, we'd say, oh, Thank you, North Dakota. We've learned something from your experience. I agree. I think I think the states are a great place to trial this out. Uh, Nick, were you going to say something? Part of the challenge that we see here in the state of affairs today is what I would call the lack of transparency and kind of almost arbitrary nature of the platform's power. If Facebook decides to kick me off, I don't necessarily know why. Um, right. They may give you know, a very vague reason but it doesn't necessarily explain to me exactly what it was that I did was wrong, for example. Um, how would you view or what would you view as potential solutions to that problem? Right. So, so that is something that people have been talking about. Some people even say, look, uh, we don't want to regulate uh, their ability to block certain viewpoints because we think there's value to having perhaps at some point, especially if there is going to be more competition, to having a left-wing platform and a right-wing platform. Uh, one problem that I, one thing that really kind of, influenced my thinking is the experience that Parler had, you know, uh, people used to say, well, if you don't like Twitter's ideological uh, restrictions, well, start your own. So Parler did start its own. And then it got blacklisted by uh, Amazon Web Services and Google Play Store and Apple Store. Uh, um, uh, and finally, it managed to get back despite that as a shadow of its former self, as best I can tell. It, but, it, but it managed to survive that at all only because it has apparently a billionaire investor behind it. Uh, and the message, I think, is loud and, sent loud and clear that, if you, that, that a lot of these big tech companies are not going to tolerate uh, uh, competitors or people who have at least a different ideological perspective. But if we got past that, maybe it's good to have kind of a liberal platform and a conservative platform and a libertarian platform and a no-holds-barred platform. Uh, but in order for that to work well, we want to have a real sense of what the actual rules are as they're actually being applied. And one thing that really frustrates me as a policy analyst is people often say, oh, I was banned because of X. And I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I need to be skeptical about these claims. If somebody says I was banned because I was posting about crypto or because I was posting about gun rights or whatever else, I need to say, really? Well, how do I know that so? Maybe you were banned for some other reason, or maybe it was just some technical glitch, or maybe it was just an error, a human error that if you only appealed would have been promptly solved. We have to accept some kind of such human errors. But given the very limited response that the platforms offer, often it's very hard to tell what's going on. So some people say, let's allow them to impose whatever rules they want, they should have to be transparent about them. Now, there are limits to transparency because part of part of the problem is that uh, some of these decisions, they could say, well, we blocked it because it violated this rule. Well, all right. Why do you think it violated this rule? And at some point, somebody says, you know, I interpreted this word in a particular way. And the words are often vague enough that we can't, that, that, that's going to give us only a limited form of transparency. It's kind of like if a jury says, yes, we're going to hold you liable because you were driving unreasonably. Provide some transparency, but not a lot, because it doesn't tell you exactly what it was that was unreasonable about this. So I do think there are difficulties with providing transparency. I do think it would be good to have more of that to the extent possible. By the way, one other problem is since a lot of these decisions are made on an algorithmic basis, often the algorithms are opaque, often even to their own creators. Uh, but presumably there are appeal mechanisms from the algorithms to some human decision makers who might then have to, uh, might then be required to offer some explanation. Under the current construct, right? So 
go back to the telecoms, right? So if, if you are a user, let's say you've been uh, harmed by a telecom, you would, you don't actually, I mean, you could, I guess, appeal to the telecom, but you could also appeal to the FCC and, and the, you know, I guess the government has bestowed that regulatory authority down to the FCC. And so, you know, what you, what you now have on your side as a, let's say, a creator that has been harmed by a social media platform or kicked off um, unfairly, you now are able to appeal to a, a government agency, government regulator, as opposed to, you know, having to appeal to the platform that kicked you off and has really no incentive or no uh, impetus to respond or give you that transparency that we're talking about, right? So, you know, theoretically, that is the construct where once common carrier status is applied, either on a federal or a state level, you're also then bestowing this kind of regulatory power to help protect the creator's you know, that, that, that is the reason why the common carrier status was put into effect in the first place. Is that some of how this would theoretically play out? Well, it's very hard to tell. And that's part of the problem, right? That all of these things have to be enforced by people. There's always the question of who's going to guard the guardians. Um, on one hand, you could say, well, let's, let's allow this to be uh, uh, done by basically ordinary litigation. This is the way a lot of rights that people have are enforced. You, you can sue uh, and you go to court and there's a judge and there are jurors. But you know, judges screw up too. Jurors can be biased in all sorts of ways. Plus also it's a very time-consuming expensive process. So we say, well, let's bring in expert uh, administrative agency personnel like the FCC, which is both the kind of the appointed body, but maybe also hearing examiners under the FCC. The Patent Trademark Office, for example, uh, deals uh, resolves a lot of questions through these kind of low-level so-called administrative law judges. Well, all right, that sounds more efficient and quicker. But on the other hand, FCC is a federal government body. Uh, its uh, members are are appointed by a political official. Uh, by the president, and they are then confirmed uh, uh, by other political officials. And uh, now their staffers might be career employees, but we may not trust them either uh, because you might say, well, all right, they come from a very, very peculiar set of uh, 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 kind of set, set of people. They are generally speaking lawyers who have chosen to spend their career working for the federal government. They have their own biases. At least jury biases are a little bit more representative of public biases and a little bit less likely to be kind of inbred and ingrown uh, because of they're all kind of working for the federal government. So you say, well, let's not do the FCC. That would be a bad idea. Let's go back again to courts. And then people say, well, wait a minute, it's so expensive to litigate. And eventually at some point, somebody throws, may throw up his hands and say, well, you know, we, we can't do any better than have the companies. Or one possibility is to say, we should leave it to private property, right? So we should leave it to private decision-making, but we really need to make sure that there really are lots and lots of rival companies out there. So that's why some people say we should forget about all this common carrier treatment and try to ensure real, um, real competition. And because these, because of network effects, because the platforms are valuable precisely because they network people together, you can't just break up Facebook into Facebook for 100 million people, Facebook for another 100 million, Facebook for another 100 million, because then how can they talk to each other? Uh, so what you really need to do is you need to set up some communication infrastructure, some something that makes them open. It's just like with telephone companies, right? We don't have a telephone company where if you're on Verizon, you can talk to Verizon people, but not uh, but not the Sprint people and, and, and the like. Uh, so, uh, so maybe what you need to do is forget about all of this extra government regulation at the level of policing individual decisions and maybe turn to structural regulation to make sure that Facebook and Twitter are set up or that, 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 the, that the underlying communications protocols are available to everybody so that people can talk using a Facebook-like system, but 
but decide which Facebook or which Facebook-like company they want to deal with. Again, just like phone companies, we get to decide that without having to limit our, uh, our, uh, uh, the people we're conversing with to the people who are uh, subscribers to that company. So lots of people have lots of ideas about this. I'm not sure what the, what the best one is, but there certainly are possible downsides to all of them is the problem. Yeah, the interoperability that, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar, there's a, there's a few bills um, that I think have now officially left the House Judiciary Committee that are touching on a few of those different kind of structural reforms that you're alluding to. You know, my, my general problem with all of this is that if it's legislation that needs to go through Congress and then, you know, multiple uh, chambers of Congress and then get signed into law, we're talking about years <laughs> um, for any of this to be put in place. Similarly, you have Lena Khan just appointed to the head of the FTC. She has written papers talking about, you know, the big tech um, needs to be reined in and, and, and all of these things sound great. My concern about Lena Khan is that what she also says is that she needs to be bestowed the power to properly rein in big tech and kind of alludes to the fact that I guess she's of the opinion the FTC actually doesn't have the authority it needs to go after these big tech monopolies. Don't know if you have an opinion there, but that also gives me hesitation to say, well, is Lena Khan and the FTC actually going to be able to get anything done in you know the next few years? But the thing that actually gives me the most optimism from what you're talking about here is on the state level. And I think that's the beautiful thing about our republic is uh, you know the state-federal relationship and how these states could move much faster to try out something like this. And you, you give the Florida example where, you know, this was a step in that direction without the nuance that you're speaking to and without actually doing this under kind of the common carrier umbrella. But that was exactly in the similar line of thinking of what Florida started to, you know, has put into motion in a preliminary fashion. I'm sure there'll be other iterations of it. So that actually gives me the most optimism is to kind of try this on the state level and just in terms of getting something done before I get more gray and white hair. You know, these are also all very important and difficult questions. Like how, how do you get things done promptly, but well, uh, you don't want the government moving too quickly. We have a system at especially at the federal level, but also in each state of checks and balances for a reason. You don't want somebody to say, oh my God, disaster. We let's enact something that completely restructures uh, this particular uh, this particular uh, sector of the economy in the next three months and the result the result might be again especially likely to be worse than the alternative and that's particularly true when the country is split and that's reflected in the split in the house and the senate professor there's moving quickly and then there's any movement at all i mean it's 2021 so i i feel like we've had I, I, I'm not at all a believer in don't just stand there, do something. Uh, that's the way that a lot of bad things get done. Sometimes it's don't just do something, stand there is the better is the better approach. I like the idea of, again, things being done at the state level, though, as you point out, for, the, for this very reason, that it allows you to experiment a bit with little parts of it. At the same time, we have to acknowledge certain things can't be done, I think, at the state level. Because we don't want to have a situation where one state sets the policy for the rest of the country. So if one state says Facebook should operate in a way that's interoperable, and let's say it's again, so take this one of the least populous states, Wyoming decides to say that to Facebook, like Wyoming would be saying for the whole country, we now need to run this experiment in which Facebook radically redesigns the system that people throughout the whole country uh, are using. On the other hand, again, I think that something that just says you can't block Wyoming residents' communications, especially with other Wyoming residents, uh, uh, based on, let's say, their viewpoint or some such, that's something that is at least technically and legally perhaps more localizable to a particular, particular state. Yeah, no, and then and that's good. It's it's appropriate to come from the perspective you have. I think, you know, just like the conversation around Section 230, for example, right, if you were to eliminate those Section 230 protections for all tech companies, that would absolutely be a net negative, right? Because think about all the startups that don't just have the resources to invest in these kinds of things. So if, if this common carrier language, for example, is done on a state level, 
and and specifically tar- targeted to these tech monopolies that are having the greatest level of impact and are making the the greatest amount of you know harm and transgression with these very you know broad stroke decisions that they're making on content censorship then that makes me feel a lot more comfortable the moment you start to make these rules apply much more broadly to all tech companies now i actually think you're doing overall more harm than you are good and it'll be interesting to see if a state does do this to any degree of uh, uh you know of 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 how much they they try to put in impugn these uh, tech monopolies. It would be interesting to see if the tech monopolies try to do what they did to Australia, which was when Australia put the screws on Google and Facebook to pay the media companies more fairly for Google News and Facebook News. Facebook and Google threatened to leave Australia altogether. And Australia called their bluff and and they ended up uh, not <laughs> um, leaving Australia, but came to the table and, and and are now paying more money to to the media companies. But I wouldn't put it past the Googles and the Facebooks of the world to really up the ante aggressively to say, "Hey, Florida, if you're going to make us a common carrier, we're leaving," or or something to that effect. I'd be very curious to see how that plays out. But uh, but yeah, like like this direction that you're talking about. You're quite right. This is something we need to think about because, among other things. In any political system, you can't just sort of view some entity. They're the ones who are being regulated and we're the ones doing the regulating, right? They have something to say about it. They may say, we don't want to be regulated. So we're going to maybe kick you, the regulators, out of office. Or we're going to threaten to just refuse to do business in a state that looks to be bad for our business. So those those are real possible moves in the chess game. Professor, this has been a fantastic conversation. Any any parting thoughts or or uh, opinions we didn't cover today on the topic? We've covered a lot. I'm sure there's a lot more left to cover, but uh, I very much enjoyed it. And thanks very much for having me on. So, what are the next steps for you? You're this was a this was a rough draft here. This one published July 5th. You've updated the title. You're coming out with it with another version of this. How could we continue to follow your work and? And you're thinking on the, on the topic. I have a Twitter feed at Volok C for conspiracy, because that's the name of our blog for historical reasons, Volok Conspiracy, a little joke. It's a bunch of law professors. Um, and uh, so if you follow Volok C, you can see what we have to say on a lot of subjects. There's a particular one on free speech issues called Volok Speech, which is just the post we have on free speech issues. You can also search for Volok Conspiracy. You can go to volok.com and forward it to Reason Magazine, which we're, which is where we're currently hosted. The actual article is coming out in this new journal that I helped start called Journal of Free Speech Law. It's going to be, we're hoping within a couple of weeks, the first items are going to be published electronically uh, and then printed uh, in maybe a month or so. Uh, and uh, uh, that's, uh, but that's mostly, the law review articles are mostly read by uh, lawyers and law professors and occasionally by judges. Uh, the uh, the stuff that we do, again, hosted at Reason at the Wallet Conspiracy is a more, more aimed at the general public. Well, Professor, it was really a pleasure having you on. We'll, we'll make sure to follow the upcoming revisions and, and publication here. And uh, thank you so much for the time. We hope to uh, have you on again. I very much look forward to it. All the best. Well, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Really a delightful conversation. And uh, we will talk to you soon.